the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> Please be seated. <clears throat> Each month, the vestry of St. Stephen's gathers for our meeting, and if you've served on the vestry, you may well know this, um, that before the meeting begins, we start with Bible study. Now, generally, the Bible study is, uh, that, that we read is the gospel appointed for the following Sunday. Um, this week, instead, we broke into two groups and pondered Paul's letter to the Romans that you have in your bulletin on page three. And I won't name the people who are in my room, but I will name what my experience was when we read this scripture and read it and read it. We looked at each other and we could hear the crickets because we said, what is going on? Who is he talking to? What is he talking about? Do we really have to talk about this scripture for 30 minutes? <laughs> Maybe I just thought that in my head. I don't think I said that part out loud. But I've been sitting in the tension of this scripture, and, and I will report that after 30 minutes, our group came to some, some ideas of some so what's and what would we do? What is Jesus calling us to do or be or change? I wasn't finished with this scripture, however. I read more, I read about it more, and I found something that I couldn't help but share with you. So Paul is writing, you know, Paul is a really good orator. He knows his audiences, so he directs his messages like that. And so he is giving this message to the Jews, but he's also preaching to the Gentiles, right? So he's, he's talking to these two audiences that often are at odds with one another. They're not sure there's room for everyone in this space. And so Paul's letter is holding the tension of these generational differences, those who have followed God and are saying, yes, yes, we know that there's a Messiah, and he's working with them to say Jesus is the Messiah. And then there's, there are these Gentiles, this big bucket that we say Gentiles, but it's actually a very diverse bucket of lots of different faiths and backgrounds. And so Paul is also trying to convince the Gentiles of the truth of Jesus as the Messiah. And so he begins speaking to his Jewish audience. I ask then, has God rejected his people? No, by no means. I myself am an Israelite. He's identifying with his Jewish congregation, right? Trust me, God did not reject the people for whom he foreknew. And then we skip to verse 29. So there's a lot in the middle that if you had your Bible in front of you, you could peruse that. Um, but I'm going to jump to what you have in front of you, which is a grammatically convoluted sentence around disobedience and mercy being intertwined in ways that make me feel just kind of muddy and confused. But I like how he begins, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Okay, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. They cannot be taken away. The gifts that God has bestowed upon all of us, the calling that God extends to each of us, no matter what. Okay, 
We can start with that foundation. And that's a reassurance, right? Just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy. I mean, when I still read it, I still go, I'm not quite getting it, but this was written not in English initially, it was written in Greek. And the Greek word that is translated for us as disobedient to God literally is translated not persuaded with respect to God. So they're not persuaded yet. They're not actually informed and rejecting God. It's not that kind of disobedience where someone says, I need you to move your car, and I say, I'm not moving my car. Like, that's disobedience, right? I'm just being abjectly difficult. But this disobedience is I haven't been fully informed yet. I haven't been persuaded. And as such, mercy is extended to me because others haven't yet been persuaded either. Paul, the orator's job and goal was to persuade people into believing, to bring them to a point of conversion of faith, to open their eyes of understanding. So just as you once didn't quite understand and needed persuading, but now have received mercy because others still needed persuading. For God has imprisoned all in that lack of understanding so that God may be merciful to all of us. We all need persuading. It's that tenacious love of God working on you, working on me, working on those we love and pray for. That persistent, tenacious love of God that holds us together in tension no matter what. And staying in tension is about as murky as this letter from Paul in this section, right? It's not easy to do. Tension doesn't stop there. When you turn the page and read our gospel from Matthew, we have even more tension. We have tension from the Pharisees who were saying, yeah, you really need to wash your hands. Jesus, you're telling people they don't have to have clean hands. That's very confusing. There are laws and the laws need to be followed. Then the disciples get really worried. Oh no, Jesus, the, the Pharisees are really mad at you because they don't like what you said tensions rise. Then you have the individual tension that follows that. We're not done with the discomfort, right? We have the Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus and says, I really, my daughter is really sick. I need you to help. And Jesus says nothing. It's a lot of tension to wrestle with on a, on a Sunday morning. There are tensions of what makes us clean, what purifies us, what makes us worthy. What does faithfulness look like? The woman comes to Jesus 
We don't have a name for her, and yet she has a very detailed conversation with Jesus. She shouts, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. I hear in her words that she too is tormented by that demon. She is hurting watching her beloved child suffer. She does not want the suffering. She's asking on behalf of her daughter for it to stop. And Jesus says nothing. You see, she's a Canaanite woman. She's a Gentile. Canaanites were usually thought to worship Baal, one of the idols. So she was not a Jew. We don't know how long that discomfort of silence and ignoring her lasted. And then she keeps pleading for help, so much so that the disciples start complaining, could you just make her go away, Jesus? She keeps shouting after us. Jesus' response is measured. I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The woman heard that, I imagine. And then she lowered herself even more. She lowered herself physically this time. Surely she knew of the stories of people who had approached Jesus and touched his robes even for healing. So maybe if she physically approached too, for her own emotional healing and for her daughter's full healing, please, Jesus, Lord, help me, she says. See, she recognizes that he is special. There are three times in the gospel according to Matthew that people in need of healing call out, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, three times. Twice, it's a duo of blind men And then once with this Canaanite woman, they're each seeking health and wholeness. So as she has lowered herself at his feet, calling for help, he answers, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs, he says. I wonder how long she paused before she responded, because this is the crux of this this scripture for me. She says, yes, Lord. She agrees. Yes, Lord. Yet. Yet. I'm not finished yet, God. I'm not yet persuaded, and maybe you aren't either. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She knows that even in her own household, just as you may have dogs that swirl around your feet, even the pups in her house gather to know that there are some crumbs to feed and nourish them. 
My dogs know that. They head straight for our kids. They know that cheese, crackers, whatever is going to fall on that ground. And so Jesus answers her. He truly answers her now. Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for, for you as you wish. She persisted. She persisted in prayer, in moving her whole body and appealing to God for help. And Jesus saw her faithfulness. And this is one of those stories that reminds us that in the midst of tension, it hurts. And yet, the Canaanite woman gives us courage to stay in the midst of those conversations. As we're continuing to discern how we can be there for those whom we love, who are in deep need of our prayers, of our support. And we too are healed in those moments. And as I read and sat with this story of the Canaanite woman who was pleading on behalf of her daughter, I rejoiced in the second half of verse 28, and her daughter was healed instantly. Isn't that the payoff that we long to hear, that we long to see in our lives as the result to our prayers? Sometimes we see it like that, and sometimes we don't. In ministry, your clergy love to have those stories because they help us cling to our faith just as you are trying to cling to yours. Earlier in my ministry, there was a young woman named, I'll call her Nikki. She was plagued by addiction to alcohol and drugs. She ended up homeless, living in her car in the Midwest, broken relationships with family. There was abuse at play. It was a deeply troubling time for her and for her parents who loved her and felt unable to help her. And the best they could do was to lower themselves and pray on their knees to God for help. Nikki moved home closer to her family and she could not stay in her parents' house. They said, no, you can't be here. And so she went into rehab in a halfway house, and she worked, and she prayed, and she struggled. Her parents walked that tenuous line that you may know, too, of, of supporting and yet not enabling, and it's a very uncomfortable dance. Once Nikki had been in her program for a while, family and friends were welcome to come from time to time to visit, and so her mom brought me to have lunch with Nikki. And we sat at these large tables in the gymnasium that was also doubling as church and teaching space for the people in the program. And we prayed together and we ate together. Her mom got to bring some homemade food that was a welcome gift. And then Nikki proudly took us to her bed, to her living space, to her quarters. She showed us how she kept her space and told us about her program and what was going well. There were times in that year that those 365 days weren't going to end. 
She thought she was going to be there forever. She kept praying, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. And she wondered if there was going to be an answer. She kept kneeling, she kept praying, and it was a slow process. But in that slow process, she has met goals she never imagined, that her parents never imagined she would be able to reach. Holding a job, getting a promotion, mentoring others in the program, healing of family, having new fulfilling friendships. Nikki got married a couple of years ago to a man in recovery, and they are living a sober, beautiful life together. And she is pursuing her dreams to God's glory. The tenacious, persistent love of God continuing to persuade her, to call her, to remind her of the gifts that God has imbued in her, to give her courage one day at a time. You know, it's our hope and our prayer to move toward health and wholeness. We pray that for our kids. We pray that for ourselves. We pray that for our friends, even for those who hurt us. We keep listening for God's call and God's gift in our lives. And so we give thanks for the ministry and the story of the Canaanite woman who stayed tenacious with Jesus, knowing and pursuing the love of God. We give thanks that Paul kept in tension the good news, even though he knew the audiences would disagree with him. We give thanks for the hope. And for the ministries that happen here, we give thanks for Becky as she listens for God's call, as she has discerned ministry in Canada, knowing that God's tenacious love doesn't leave any of us behind. And so, with grateful hearts, we say, Amen.